we have your word to anchor our souls into. Lord, your word always gives us what we need, the stability we need, the strength we need, the kick in the pants we need sometimes, the love that we need, because it reveals to us who you are, who you are, your love for us, what you expect of us, your plan for us, how much you love us. So Lord, I pray that you would let, help us let go of anything that's distracting us right now, that we may leave those things at your feet and be one with you and hear what you have for us this morning. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Time and time again, financial experts will tell you that, the, that real estate is one of the mo best investments you can make, which got me thinking. I wonder to what lengths and for how much money have the most expensive buildings adjusted for inflation been built? So I went and found out. <laughs> and now you get to be the beneficiaries of that knowledge whether or not you want it. <laughs> There's an article on insider.com that actually lists the top 19, but I'm only going to mention a few that I found the most interesting. And these start, start in the billions of dollars. It's insane. Okay, first up, the city of dreams in Macau, China, costs $2.75 billion to build and includes a room that's just four giant screens and offers visitors an immersive underwater experience. Why? Just cause. The Freedom Tower in New York City made the list with costing $4 billion to build. That huge amount doesn't surprise me, though, as the, as the building symbolizing the American spirit unbending to terrorism. A staggering and almost unbelievable amount of at least, they don't have an actual amount on this, it's at least $30 billion was spent on upgrading the world's most sacred mosque in Mecca. It covers 88 acres and hosts 5 million Muslims each year. But the one that really caught my attention on this list was the most controversial one. Indian billionaire Mukesh Ambani chose to build his residence on the site of an orphanage in Mumbai. His home, which he named Antilla, cost $2.5 billion to build. This is just his home. And has often been criticized for being such an extravagant home in the middle of so much poverty and destitution. Something tells me, by looking at this house, that he just doesn't care. Some of these properties just blow your mind with how much money these people invested in these pieces of real estate. But you know what? And I'm sure you already know this. No matter what kind of rate of return they made on those investments, they ultimately translate into not one cent when it comes to eternity. Not one cent. In our parable this morning, Jesus talks about that eternal investment. What we invest in on this earth with the time that we have left with the resources that we have right now. That that will be all that matters when we either take our last breath on this earth or Jesus comes back for us. Like I mentioned 
towards the end of my message last week, the, the three sections of illustrations and parables we talked about the past three weeks all had to do with the shocking surprise factor of Jesus' partial return for us. We're not really going to be talking uh, about that much today, so if you really want to know more about the details of what I was talking about with that, all three of those messages are up on our website and podcast platforms. Today's parable also has to, is connected to the truth of Jesus' return for his church, known as the rapture, but it has to do not with really the su shocking surprise factor, but how we should be focused on spending our time right now in light of the possibility that Jesus could return for us at any moment. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew 25. We're going to be starting in verse 14. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there, or you can look this up on your smartphone. Matthew, I, want us, uh, I want us all to see this together. Matthew 25, verse 14. And we read, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. It, being the kingdom of God, Again, like I referenced last week, the first word of this section, for, tells us that this section continues to be connected to everything else immediately before it. Since everything else immediately before this is directly connected to Jesus returning for his church, this parable is also directly connected to Jesus returning for his church. And similar to last week's parable, this is meant to describe the setting of how we should be in the days leading up to Jesus' return for us. And when is that? Right now. Right now. As I've explained about similar parables, when we read that term slave here, this does not mean that Jesus is condoning slavery as we understand it, especially in this country, where a fellow human being made in the image of God is stripped of their basic human rights and is treated as anything less than God's wonderful creation. In Jesus' day in Jewish culture, these would have been people referred to as bond servants. These were fellow Jewish people who owed so much money to another person, they became indentured servants of that person for a set period of time, a set period of time, and then afterward were to be released with their debt fully erased. So a presumably wealthy man who has indentured bond servants as a part of his household is about to go on a journey away from his home. That's what we read in verse 14. He calls his servants to himself and entrusts his earthly possessions to them in that place along with something else. In addition, we read in verse 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, and then something very curious is said here each according to his own ability, and then he went away. Then he said, adios, and went away. The coin, known as a talent in the Roman world, was worth a considerable amount of money. Scholars differ on the exact worth, but it's probably about 10,000 denarii. To make that a little bit more understandable to us today, a denarius was worth a full 12-hour day's worth of work, and could be used to buy food for a family for that day, or equal to about $20 for that day. Multiply that by 10,000, and you have just one talent, one talent, worth over 30 years worth of work. Just one talent, 
worth over 30 years of work. And to take this amount one step further, if you translate one talent into US dollars today, you have just one talent worth about $200,000 today. Even today, that's a sizable amount of money entrusted to you, even if you were just entrusted with one talent, right? And did this wealthy man only distribute one talent per servant? No, we didn't read that in verse 15. No, he distributes five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to the third. So while the third servant was entrusted about $200,000, the second servant was entrusted $400,000, and the first servant was entrusted a cool $1 million. That's how much this first servant was entrusted with. For whatever reason, we're not told why, the wealthy man entrusted these varying amounts of money to these three servants. It just says according to their abilities. But perhaps he already had an inkling of what kind of person each of them was and was really testing the third servant with this first, with this one talent. We're not, we're not told why he did the differing um, amounts according to their abilities. But what would you do if you were the first servant entrusted with $1 million to do something with while the guy you worked for went out of town? What would you do with it? That was a large amount of money to invest and get a return on. If you had a million dollars just to invest, not to buy things you needed with it, but just to invest in good stocks, you'd get a decent return back, wouldn't you? And that's exactly what the first servant did. Verse 16. <clears throat> Immediately, the one, <laughs> like that, Immediately. The guy's dust cloud hadn't even disappeared yet. And immediately, <laughs> the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. The word here for traded in the NASB can also mean work with those talents. In the first century Jewish world, according to the Jewish law, Jewish people were not supposed to charge their fellow Jewish neighbors interest on anything that was lent to them. But Gentiles were not held to that standard, and Jewish people could charge Gentiles interest on what they lent to them. And according to one biblical scholar, Jewish aristocrats operated more like the Greek world than holding the Jewish law standards anyway. And according to one biblical scholar, in the first century Roman world, interest rates were outrageous. There was no governmental influence on interest rates, so they were sky high. In fact, there's a record of a very wealthy person in this time period lending money to an entire city at a 50% interest rate. 50% interest rate. That is just insane. The current mortgage fixed 30 New Jersey interest rate as of Tuesday was about 3%, 50%. Long story short, what this first servant did was take that million dollars and lend it to money changers who with that exorbitant interest rate, as we see in verse 16, over some time earned that first servant another cool million dollars. This guy now has two million dollars. 
He doubled his investment easily over time. We read that the second servant went and did the exact same thing as the first with what he was given, verse 17. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. The second servant also took his $400,000 and went and lent it to money changers at an exorbitant interest rate and also doubled his investment over time, ending up with $800,000. You would expect the third servant, you would expect, okay, I know what's going to happen next. I already know what's going to happen next. You would expect the third servant to go and do the exact same thing with his $200,000 entrusted to him that the other two did. But no, in verse 18 we read, But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. This third servant goes and buries his talent in the ground somewhere. Now this was a practice in this time. You might think, what in the world is this guy thinking? But this was actually a practice that people would do back in this time period. If you wanted to keep your money safe, you would go and bury it somewhere. In fact, Jesus had a whole other parable based on that concept. Remember the one where the poor man accidentally digs up another guy's treasure that he had buried in a field and probably forgot even existed? We talked about that one while we were still doing outdoor services. But here's the thing. This servant knew better than to just do that. He knew what the other two servants did. It's not like the other two servants went and did what they did with their money in secret. They didn't go out in the middle of the night and try to hide it. They didn't didn't do it in secret. And it's not like this third servant didn't have the knowledge that that was a very good way of investing and making a very good return. And in fact, the master calls him out for it when he returns. You knew exactly what you were doing. The very least that this third servant could have done with this entrusted money was to put it in a bank, like we'll see in a little bit, which existed back then and would have been very, every much as as safe as just burying it in the ground. And if the money was put into a bank, some kind of interest could have been made on it, even if it was a small amount. But this third servant simply did not care. And really... His action proved how selfish he really was. And this is why. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, the third servant knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't ignorant. He wanted to do something else with what was entrusted to him. That something else was this. This third servant watched the master of the house leave on his journey, Then he watched the other two do what they did with their money. And he had doubts that this guy would actually return. Just because this guy left and said he was going to return doesn't mean he's actually going to return. That's huge, and here's why. If the third servant doubted his master would return, what would he want to keep for himself if his doubts proved true and the master never did return? that $200,000 that was just given to him. So he buried it instead of putting it in a bank. If the third servant had put the money in the bank, it would have been recorded under whose name? Under his master's name. It wouldn't have been recorded under his name. It would have been recorded under his master's name. 
No bank would take $200,000 a bond servant showed up with out of nowhere claiming was his. It would have to be recorded as that master's as that servant's master's in order to be deposited. But that's the last thing this third servant wanted. He wanted the, even if it was just the slightest chance, he wanted the chance that if his master did not return, he could go, dig up the money, and claim it for himself. And so the only thing he could do with that motivation was to simply bury him. Should the master not return, once everything calmed down and the estate he left behind was settled, he could go, dig up that $200,000, disappear into the night, and make a whole new life for himself. That was his plan. But what the third servant did not take into account was what would happen to him if the master did return. All he was thinking about, all he was busy with, was the possibility of him not returning. And later than expected, the master does indeed return from his journey. Verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. See, back in this time and culture, wealthy businessmen would often go away on business trips, but because of the unreliability of transportation, weather disturbances, and dangerous highways filled with hidden thieves, no one could pinpoint when that businessman would return. Sometimes those business trips were waylaid so much that it took a long time for that person to return. The third servant was banking on him not returning at all. But lo and behold, finally that businessman returns. And not only does that businessman return, but he wants to know what happened with all the money he had entrusted to his servants. As expected, the first servant eagerly comes up and lays out all the $2 million in front of his master with a huge smile on his face. Verse 20. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. I mean, no wonder the master is so happy about what the first servant did with that amount of money. He took one million dollars and turned it into two million dollars, and the master didn't even have to do anything to get that. And so, verse 21, his master said to him, Well done! I would have said the same thing. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were, uh, I, I put you in charge of many things, or you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Apparently, that original $1 million wasn't even a whole lot to this businessman. You notice that? Because he says it, a few or small. You were entrusted with a little bit. Apparently, that $1 million was a little bit to this guy. Because of the first servant's faithfulness with the $1 million that was entrusted to him, his master will now put him in charge of a whole lot more valuables because he proved his faithfulness. That was an honorable position in those days. An honored servant in a rich household was usually in a higher social status and treated a lot better societally than even the peasants 
who worked out in the fields all day. In addition, according to one biblical scholar, the word for joy here can also mean feast. So upon his return, this businessman throws a feast, and the first servant is an honored guest at this feast. The same thing happened with the second servant, and the same response given by his master, verses 22 and 23. Also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Both the first and second servants were to be honored guests at this feast for their extreme faithfulness with what was entrusted to them. Next comes the third servant. Now notice what he tries to excuse himself with, verses 24 through 25. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. You see that? He tries to cover up his lack of trust in his master's return, in subsequent lack of faithfulness with what was entrusted him, and in reality, extreme selfishness and wanting to keep it for himself, by acting like he was too scared to do anything with it because he was scared of the master, of the businessman. We know that wasn't the real reason at all, though. And his master sees right through it. It's probably because the businessman already distrusted this guy that he only gave him one talent to begin with. Now his suspicions are confirmed by the third servant's measly and weak excuse for not doing anything, verses 26 and 27. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. See, his master sees right through that third servant's excuse. He doesn't give him one minute of thinking he believed him. In fact, he calls him straight out by calling him wicked and lazy. That's how he starts off his response. Not only was the third servant lazy and what he couldn't be bothered to do anything with what he was given to him, but he was wicked because in the back of his mind, he was hoping to keep it for himself. And really, what did he hope for? That the master would die and not actually return. That's really what he was hoping for. Notice what else the master responds with too. As pointed out by one biblical scholar in the preceding verses, the third servant, you see that, refers to his master as a hard man, as a jerk, who reaps where he doesn't sow or plant seed. But in the master's response, he doesn't even dignify the third servant, calling him a hard man with a response. The master knows entrusting his money with these servants was, something, was not something unbearable or mean. And he's not going to let this servant's conception of him as a jerk give him any excuse for his behavior. The businessman does, however, pick up on the third servant referring to him as an industrious and creative businessman. 
He turns those words around on the third servant, though, by basically saying, so if you knew me to be an industrious and creative businessman, why did you still not even attempt to be even the slightest industrious with what I gave to you and do the bare minimum thing with that literally everyone who has any kind of money does and put it in a bank? At the very least, I could have made the bare minimum interest rate for that deposit in the bank. The truth of the matter is, is that businessman knew all along. He knew all along what motivated the third servant to do what he did. Pure selfishness. And furthermore, the hope that the businessman would actually die and never show up again. Because of this servant's wicked selfishness, what he was hoping beyond hope for is exactly what he ends up losing. Verse 28. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. This isn't a slight towards the second servant. It's just highlighting the high return that the first servant earns for his master. And the third servant loses the very thing he placed all of his hopes on. It just disappears like that. See, even though both servants, both the first and second servants, ended up doubling their investment, why that talent goes to the first servant is that the first servant had to work a little bit harder to double his. It's one thing to make another $400,000 from an original $400,000. It's quite another to make an additional $1 million, even after starting with $1 million. Anything could happen with that money anything. The first servant could have been swindled or cheated by which money changers he chose to go into business with, or the money could have been stolen by a common thief. Beyond that, the first servant could have been even more tempted than the second servant to skim a little top off the top of it. Who's going to miss $100,000 off the top of a million dollars? He might have been even more tempted than the second servant to just skim a little off the top. But the fact that his wisdom avoided all of these different scenarios and all these different pitfalls, and he ended up making a whole other million dollars, $600,000 more than the second servant, tells us just how faithful the first servant was. Again, it's not a slight towards the second servant. It's pointing out to us just how faithful the first servant was. The first servant's wisdom diligence and faithfulness were rewarded. This verse doesn't necessarily mean that this first servant received any of that money. When it says take that one talent and give it to the one who had the, the uh, ten talents, that doesn't mean that this, the first servant got any of that money. In fact, why was he even there in the first place? Because that through whatever circumstances he had owed this businessman so much money, he had to start working for him. So why would this businessman then turn around and give him a bunch of money on top of what this bond servant already owed him? That's why he was there in the first place. What this verse probably means then is that the first servant would be given the same further responsibility and honor for $2.2 million. He would be given the same further responsibility and honor for earning $2.2 million. The return he actually earned and the honor and responsibility derived from an extra talent 
on top of that, which he didn't technically earn. Again, this shows just how much this master is rewarding the first servant for his extreme faithfulness. By way of the businessman, Jesus gives the moral of the story, verses 29 through 30. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. And then we see that term come up again. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In the interpretation of this parable, similar to the parables we've covered lately, the businessman is obviously Jesus, who has left this earth and has been delaying and returning for 2,000 years. The three servants are those who connect themselves to his household, the church. Now let's start with the wicked servant first. Again, similar to Jesus' other parables we've been covering lately, this does not teach that one can lose their salvation. Take that servant and throw him out into the darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There have been other parables, right, with similar characters and the exact same outcome. What are they? The tares or the wheat-looking weeds that were allowed to grow up with the actual wheat until the harvest, the fish that looked good from a distance but were actually dead and sickly were removed from the actually healthy and good fish, the wedding guest tried to get away with not putting on the wedding clothes but got called out for it and thrown out, and last week the selfish bridesmaids tried to get away with looking like diligent bridesmaids but were found out. In all of these parables, there was a character, character or a group of characters that looked, for all intents and purposes, looked like what a Christian is supposed to look like, someone who is morally good on the outside. But in all of these parables, that character who thought they were good enough on their own and didn't have to do what was expected of them and thought they could get away with it were eventually what? found out, right? They couldn't hide it forever. They were eventually found out. They could not hide the fact that they didn't do what they were supposed to do to be honored and rewarded. And it's the exact same understanding for the third servant in today's parable. He thought he could look like his fellow diligent and wise and faithful servants on the outside. But he could only fake it for so long. In reality, he didn't actually believe the master would ever return. Was kind of hoping he wouldn't. Was kind of hoping he'd die along the way. And so wanted to reap the benefit and blessing of being connected to the church family without ever actually being faithful to Jesus. Without actually ever being faithful to the master. Those who think they can just fake their faith their entire lives or who think they're good enough on their own without actually ever having to ask Jesus for forgiveness or surrender their lives to him or serve him in any way will discover one day that the master has indeed returned and they missed it. And they'll be found out for who they really are because Jesus will snatch up all those who had put their faith and trust in him and served him faithfully and they will be left to face the coming and horrific tribulational judgments. They will lose everything they thought they would, able, they would be able to enjoy. God's favor, 
God's blessing, God's reward, along with God's protection during the tribulation period. And they will be swept away by the destruction of those judgments and face the exact same fate as those who consciously and repeatedly rejected Jesus their entire lives, weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Jesus ends this parable with. Those who never actually accept Jesus as their Savior and King ask Him for forgiveness of their sin and surrender their lives in service to Him, no matter how good they thought they had been on this earth and no matter how well they, they faked their faith, will be thrown out into the outer darkness, as verse 30 is very clear about. And banishment from God's presence, a place where weeping and gnashing of teeth describes intense physical and emotional pain, a place we all deserve for our sin, a place called hell. But Jesus has provided a way of escape from that and taking our place on the cross and paying the payment for our sin, death by a perfect person, that we had no hope of paying ourselves. We only need to accept that for ourselves and therefore ask him for forgiveness and surrender our lives to transform and do with as he deems best. There's eternal freedom in that. Not holding on to any part of our lives for ourselves. Since in reality, if you really stop and think about it, none of our lives is ours to begin with. None of it. Not one part. The talents have different, differing inter interpretations by biblical scholars. Some interpret it as what we do with the money God has entrusted to us to use for his work. Some interpret it as other non-monetary resources like our time and talents and skills and gifts. And others interpret it as opportunities that God gives for us to serve him. My take is, why not interpret it as all of those ways? Interpret it as all of that. Really, any and all of that is true. Jesus, our master, has gone away on a journey back to heaven for the time being in order to prepare our heavenly homes for us and to intercede before, uh, for us before the great throne of the Father. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, like the selfish servant, Jesus is coming back. His delay, as Peter tells us, is to allow for more people to put their faith in him. It's an act of grace. But there will be a day when he will return for his true servants, those who actually trusted in him for their salvation and then served him with good works out of love for his salvation. And as we've been discussing week after week, we will be rewarded for what we've done for his kingdom. Don't poo-poo that. We will be rewarded for what we've done for his kingdom. We don't know what that reward will be, and it doesn't affect our salvation. But never underestimate what reward will be doled out by Jesus the King himself. This reward may take the form of higher governing positions in the earthly thousand-year messianic kingdom that Jesus will establish following his full second coming. The first and second servants were rewarded with greater responsibility and honor in their master's household, and the same could be true for faithful servants in the messianic kingdom on earth. The more work done for Jesus now 
may result in greater responsibility and honor in governing under Jesus' reign on this earth. Or it may be other reward. Whatever it is, any work done solely for Jesus in this life will be rewarded himself at the time that he returns for his church. So take an honest look at what God has entrusted to you to serve him with during what remaining time there is left on earth before he returns or before any of us take our last breath. You guys know I don't talk about this very often, but it's in this parable, so I'd be remiss if I don't mention anything about it. Has God blessed you with monetary resources? What are you doing with them? How are you serving God with them? Believe it or not, and you can look this up, Jesus talks about money and what we should be doing with the money God has entrusted to us more than any other topic in the New Testament. Are you using the money God has entrusted to you for yourself and your own selfish desires like the third servant sought to do? Or are you investing it in building and furthering God's kingdom by way of his church, missionaries around the world, and other ministries who care for the physical needs of people and offer the hope of Jesus right along with that? Or you going and personally helping somebody and offering the hope of Jesus right along with that? Rest assured, firstly, through this parable and where Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven, we all know those verses. The sacrifices you make with the money God has entrusted to you in this life to build and further his kingdom will earn you overwhelming reward when he returns. You might say, well, he's sounding like one of those guys I see on TV right about now. That's not just coming from a pastor. That truth is given both here and numerous other places in God's word. God has blessed each and every one of us with different things to further his kingdom. It could be money. It could be time. It could be talents. It could be money, time, and talents. Or it could be any combination of things he's entrusted to us as his children, co-heirs with Jesus and fellow workers of the Great Commission, of taking the gospel message to the entire world. What are each of us doing with anything and everything God has entrusted to us? What are we doing with all of it? Are we being faithful at all with what he has entrusted to us? Any of it? Are we being wise and diligent with the blessings God has given to us? Whether they be money, whether they be time, whether they be talents or a combination of the three. This message is nothing new. And in fact, it fits perfectly with our church-wide vision to see every member and, att and attender of Fellowship Church serving our community and church with the love and humility of Jesus. And I say, boy, he's bringing that up again, isn't he? Sure am. To see every member and attender of Fellowship Church serving our community and church with the love and humility of Jesus. I haven't forgotten about that even through this pandemic, and I hope nobody else here has. Like we've talked about week after week, Scripture is very clear that believers in Jesus will be judged for what we do with what God has entrusted to us. 
The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church that everything we've said and done in this life will pass through the fire of judgment. Our salvation will not be affected, but if we did nothing for Jesus in this life, or everything we did in this life was for our selfish desires, all we'll be left with is a handful of ashes to account for our entire earthly life. Is that what you want? Those things we did for Jesus will survive the fire and translate into heavenly reward. I might have stepped on some toes this week, but it's the truth, truth out of God's word. It's never too late to make some changes. If you haven't really been all that faithful with what God has entrusted to you as his servant, you can start being faithful with it. You can start using the money, time, and talents he's given to you to serve him with all your heart. You can do so starting today. And like the first two servants, you too will be rewarded by the master when he returns. And hear the words we all long to hear at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy and feast of your master. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this powerful parable everything that we can glean from it. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today that they're thinking to themselves, boy, I really haven't been all that faithful and wise and diligent with this one area God has entrusted to me to use to further build his kingdom. Lord, I pray that they would make some changes today. Today is a new day. They would make what changes that need to be changed and start being wise and diligent and faithful with what you've entrusted to us. And know that when you return for us, you will reward all of the work and all the sacrifices we have made to build your kingdom here on earth. And Lord, I pray that if, there, if there's anybody here watching online later that, that hasn't even taken that first step of putting their faith and trust in Jesus for their salvation, I pray that they would do so today. We have no clue how much time we have left on this earth, both for when we may die or when Jesus comes back for his church. And I pray that we will make that decision right now. Lord, I pray that as we walk out from this place, we would be changed people. We would be new people walking out into this dark world, bringing with us the hope and power of Jesus Christ. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with